Hello and welcome to the latest edition of the Moneymakers Weekly Investment Trust podcast. I'm Jonathan Davis, the editor of the Investment Trust Handbook. And with me this week, as always, is Simon Elliott, Head of Investment Trust Research at Winterflood Securities. So, Simon, what's been uh, happening in the markets this week? Well, it's not been a bad week, to be honest, or not a bad week, at least for the investment company sector. In the first four days of the week, uh, the sector was up one and a half percent. And that actually represented an outperformance of the wider UK market. It was probably up about 0.7 percent over that period. We're seeing a little bit of a, a market decline on Friday as we as we speak. It's probably up about half a percent or so. But in terms of the investment company sector, it certainly benefited from discount tightening. So the sector average discount went from about 3.3% to 2.2% in the first four days of the week. But as always, plenty to talk about across the marketplace. I mean, certainly the news overnight was of Amazon and Apple missing their earnings estimates, and, and that certainly caused a few market wobbles, particularly as it seemed to arise from supply chain issues which is obviously something that a lot of companies are now starting to talk about. But in general, inflation remains to the forefront of most people's minds. And a lot of speculation that the Bank of England could see a rate rise, a rate hike as early as next week. Uh, Obviously, the, the budget in the UK generated a little bit of interest as well, particularly as the Conservative Party seemed to be now the party of tax and spend. But it's really about, I think, the earnings that the markets are particularly fixated on. And just one other thing that caught my eye this week, um, well, was the fact that Tesla went through $1 trillion market cap, apparently the seventh company to achieve that lofty goal. And it's probably also worth mentioning Facebook, who have decided to rebrand as Meta, but they are keeping their vows. <laughs> Indeed they are. Okay, so uh, perhaps we just say something very quickly about the budget. I mean, as you say, some striking headlines and some striking proposals for what is coming from a conservative administration. Lot of spending. I think the political strategy is to cut tax rates before the next election, assuming this government runs to term. But was there anything else in the budget that you thought was uh, particularly relevant to investors? They seem to have taken the budget pretty much in their stride, which is perhaps not quite the reaction you might initially have expected. Yeah, no, I think you make a good point. I mean, there was a time, obviously, when the UK budget was a major event and probably shaped markets, or particularly shaped the UK market. But to be perfectly honest, everything seems to be leaked well in advance these days. So when the Chancellor of the Exchequer invariably rises to his or maybe at some stage her feet, there seems very little to shock the market. So, you know, market reaction to what's actually said on the day seems to be quite fleeting. Obviously, there's been some chat around the limits on ICES and JICES and the fact that they've been kept unchanged for yet again Uh, and also some discussion about the general treatment of pensions. But um, I think for most investors, the budget has kind of passed off without any particularly great comment. I mean, we do know that the rate of taxation on dividends is going up by, I think, 1%, or that was previously known or announced. But that's not in itself going to make a major uh, difference to market sentiment. It might have an impact, a small impact over time. But uh, not a huge deal, therefore, which is in a way quite interesting, given the scale of what the Chancellor is proposing to do. But we are in a very strange, still in a very strange post-COVID situation, I think it's fair to say. So let's move on and talk about some corporate activity in the investment trust sector. Well, we could start off, you mentioned that Facebook is changing its name to uh, Meta, or at least the holding company to Meta, M-E-T-A, a nice Greek word, which I seem to recall means something, but I'll come back to that later on. (laughs) So let's talk about uh, first item of corporate news concerns our friends at uh, Aberdeen, or as we now have to call them, ABRDN. Let's catch up with uh, what they've been doing with some of their trusts. Yes, well, I think it's probably worth starting with the merger uh, between Aberdeen Emerging Markets Investment Company and Aberdeen New Tie Investment Trust. This is something that we've been talking about over the last few months. This is progressing nicely. So the news this week is that uh, shareholders in Aberdeen Emerging Markets Investment Company approved proposals for a name change, the new investment policy and a combination of the assets. Uh, So that all went through. So uh, Aberdeen Emerging Markets Investment Company has been renamed Aberdeen Novals China Investment Company with the ticket ACIC. And so that was with effect from the 26th of October. 
Now, we're still waiting to hear the result of the 15% tender that that particular fund is holding. We'll find that out next week. At the same time, Aberdeen New Tie Investment Trust, their shareholders approved the proposals for the combination of the assets uh, with Aberdeen Emerging Markets. And that, I think, uh, from the top of my head, is going to be on about the 9th of November. So we've still got a week or two before that all happens. So I think the kind of key takeaways is this is all progressing quite nicely. These deals always take a little bit of time to kind of bed in because you need shareholder approval and so on and so forth. But that one is uh, very much on track. So nothing much has happened in terms of the relative prices of these two trusts, which has now been consolidated, as it were. So is there anything we can read into the uh, performance of those shares over the last week or two? Well, in terms of the the discounts, the ratings on them, I mean, Aberdeen China Investment Company, I've got it on about an 11% discount at the moment. Uh, Aberdeen New Thai uh, on about a 10% discount. So, you know, I think it's what we've, we've talked about previously, that as and when this deal is put to bed, these two funds come together. I mean, there'll be about £70 million or so rolling into Aberdeen China Investment Company as the ongoing vehicle. But in addition to that, there will have to be, one would expect, a degree of promotion uh, in terms of setting out their stall in, in terms of the new investment approach and also uh, in terms of the shareholder base as well. So at the moment, Aberdeen China Investment Company has got quite a concentrated shareholder base and that needs to move on. So there's a, a, an issue around the shares in public hands that, again, that's all in the, in the public domain. It's been discussed on a number of occasions. So quite a bit of work to be done. But until the, the, the two funds come together, um, I suspect they'll keep their powder dry. Okay, well, there is one other small piece of news uh, affecting the name change, and that is um, a trust which I own some shares in, I have to say, uh, which I've always known as Standard Life UK Smaller Companies Trust. That's going to be called something else in future. To be honest, it's already changed its name. So it has become the Aberdeen, no vowels, UK Smaller Companies Growth Trust. So shareholders approve that name change with effect from the 25th of October. And that actually represents the first investment trust within the Aberdeen stable to adopt the new brand. They've got about 23 investment trusts, so that will come down with that merger we just talked about to 22. Um, So one suspects there will be further name changes to come. Right. So that change became effective this week. That's probably why I've talked about it in the future still, but it actually happened this week. You're quite right. uh, On the 25th of October. Yeah. Okay. Let's move on. Talk about Artemis Alpha, where we know the board is proposing a change in the uh, tender stroke share buyback approach they've been planning. What's the latest on that? Yes, that's right. So there will be a shareholder vote on this one on the 11th of November. Uh, And as you say, that's with regard to the change of policy. Um, So again, we talked about this a week or two ago, instead of having this uh, proposed tender offer of 25% of the issue share capital, they would look to adopt what they call a sustainable share buyback policy with a target of maintaining a narrow discount. But that requires shareholder approval. And that will be on the 11th of November. Okay, so let's talk about uh, EP Global Opportunities Trust, ticker EPG, which has made uh, an interesting announcement about uh, where it hopes to go in future. Yes, this was an interesting development, actually. Um, What the announcement said this week is that the board intends to assume control uh, of the investment trust, which sounds a bit kind of sinister, but it effectively means it will become a self-managed investment trust. The portfolio manager, Sandy Nairn, he will continue, absolutely continue his involvement, his day-to-day responsibility. But the proposal is to expand the fund's investment objective and its policy to allow investment in unlisted uh, equity-linked securities, other funds, and allocate a proportion of the portfolio to specialist sub-advisors. So heads of terms with Franklin Templeton and uh, Sandy Nairn have been agreed and Franklin Templeton will, um, what's been described as sub-advise on 70% of the portfolio. In addition to that, they announced a tender offer, and that will be for up to 20% of the shares in issue at a 2% discount. Um, We're still waiting to see the circular. There's going to be a circular on the new investment policy that will come out in mid-December, and it will be subject to approval by shareholders in January next year. But um, certainly a very interesting development. This follows an announcement they made back in August, actually, at the time of their interim results, that there was going to be this um, review of strategic direction. And this is the result. So I have to declare a slight interest in this one. As some listeners may know, I uh, was a co-author with Sandy Nell of a book about Sir John Templeton's methods of investing, which came out about a decade ago. And I've known Sandy for many, many years and have collaborated with him on a number of other books and so on that he's done over the years. So that declare that interest. And it just so happens that it, this very week has seen the uh, the publication of 
a new book by him, which is called The End of the Everything Bubble, Why $75 Trillion of Investor Wealth is in Mortal Jeopardy. And uh, Sandy is a well-known value investor. He follows the methods of Sir John Templeton, who he worked for for many years. And uh, his value style obviously has been out of favour in recent years, but he uh, is strongly of the view, as you can uh, learn by reading this book, that we are approaching the end of the current market cycle. And he thinks he detects signs of excess and so on that uh, will in due course have to come to an end. And I think the idea behind uh, what was being proposed with the uh, EP Global Opportunities Trust is that it should, as you say, become a kind of flexible self-managed investment trust that is capable of steering away successfully through the uh, the kind of market disruption that is probably going to happen in due course, given the high valuations today and so on. Obviously, it's not up to me to tell you what uh, he's planning to do. I don't know all the details at all, but uh, it's an interesting one. A uh, move from a, a trust with an external manager to a self-managed investment trust, where it's against the tide, you could say. So it's, a, I think, quite an interesting development. And uh, it is also fair to say, I think, and is regularly disclosed that uh, Sandy Nairn has a significant personal stake in this particular trust. So he's certainly, uh, I think, going to be uh, hoping to put his money where his mouth is. So it'll be interesting to see how that plays. Do you have any thoughts on uh, on any of that and how it might be received by the market when we find out a bit more about what he's proposing to do? No, I think that all makes an awful lot of sense. I mean, obviously, just a bit of background on, on this fund. I mean, Sandy launched this, as you know, back in 2003, and it's always focused on um, what they describe as undervalued global equities. This sounds like an evolution in that particular story, but consistent with what it's always trying to do from launch. Again, just to kind of flesh out some of the story, I mean, Edinburgh Partners that Sandy set up probably about 2002, three, it was about that time, was acquired by Franklin Templeton over three years ago now in 2018. And it's also notable that, you know, as a self-managed investment trust, I think there's an even greater onus on the board of the investment trust in question. And actually on this particular board, it's an experienced board, particularly two people stand out, Tom Walker, who used to be an investment trust manager during his time at Martin Curry, and David Ross, who was formerly part of Aberforth Partners, who are obviously very experienced in the investment trust world. But even today, EP Global Opportunities is, is quite distinct. If you look at the portfolio, uh, it's a very concentrated portfolio, about 34 holdings at the moment, quite a significant cash weighting, I think at the moment, cash and fixed income represented about 30% at the end of August. Uh, and again, I suspect that's very reflective of Sandy's view in terms of uh, market valuations at the moment. Uh, and there's also a holding in the Templeton European Long Short Fund, which obviously, uh, in theory at least, should give uh, a protection and try to uh, deliver absolute performance in different market conditions. So arguably, it's already started to go down this particular route. But it'd be very interesting to find out some more details behind these proposals and as you say, to see what the, the shareholder reaction is going to be. Yes, I mean, all I would say is that, you know, many years ago, I was uh, given some advice by someone who was very friendly with James Goldsmith, who, uh, whatever his sort of, you think about his business activities or political activities, he was a very successful uh, investing his own money. And he had a, uh, a phrase that when people asked him, what do you think about the market or so on? He said, well, that's the really dumb question to ask. What you should be asking me is not what I think, but what I'm doing. <laughs> you know, anybody can have a view about what the market is going to do. I think it might do this. I think it might do that. But uh, it's always a good idea to follow what people are doing with their own money, because that actually reflects uh, how deeply or with what conviction they believe in what they're doing. And uh, this might be relevant in this particular case. But it'd be interesting to see how it develops. And uh, as you say, there's meant to be a circular coming out in a few weeks' time, and I hope that'll be uh, a case where we can uh, find out a bit more detail about how exactly this uh, new policy will, will pan out. Okay, so let's move on and talk about third-point investors. We've had plenty of occasions to talk about them in the past few weeks. What's the latest on this particular uh, set of circumstances? Well, talking of circulars, they've published uh, a circular convening a general meeting, an EGM for the 1st of December, and that's to approve terms of the 2022 exchange facility, which enables conversion of shares in third point investors into the Cayman based master fund, third point offshore fund. Without getting too bogged down in the details, it's worth dwelling on this because obviously the board of third point investors have been put under quite a lot of pressure, including public pressure through various letters written from some of their leading shareholders. Basically, what are you going to do about the discount? And this is one of their kind of key responses to that, that they've put in place this facility mechanism that allows 
essentially larger institutional investors flip into the master fund and at much tighter levels, thereby effectively, uh, in theory at least, leading to the discount to narrow. Whether it works or not remains to be seen, but it's worth noting the 2022 facility will be at a 2% discount to NAV, and that compares with a 7.5% discount for the 2021 facility. Now, again, as we talked about before, the minimum tender amount per shoulder is a mere $10 million dollars. So as I mentioned, this is very much designed for institutional investors, although I think the board can waive that particular level. And the offer period is going to open next year, so in January 2022. The 2021 facility is currently active, and that will run to the 15th of November. But one suspects that uh, people might be minded, institutional investors might be minded to wait for next year's facility, particularly given that it's at a 2% discount rather than a 7.5% discount that's on the table this year. And uh, the exchange is expected in the third week of December. And it's, again, worth noting, any undersubscription of the 2021 facility up to $75 million can be added to the 2022 facility. So it's all a bit technical, but suffice to say, the question is, will it narrow the discount? And that will really be the kind of the proof is in the pudding on this one. Indeed. And uh, has there been any progress so far? Well, there has been some progress, we know, in recent weeks. Uh, but where have we got to in terms of uh, the discount narrowing? It has narrowed a little, I think. Yes. Yeah, so, well, I've got on about a 16.5% discount at the moment. That compares with an average over the previous 12 months of about 16% or so. So it will be very interesting to see what the take-up of this mechanism is. It is also worth saying that there is an initial six-month lockup for any converters so it's not a case of flipping to the master fund and, and get your money back. So this, this is not a, a, an immediate cash proxy. But uh, very interesting to see if it has the desired effect. It will indeed. I mean, as you say, the combination of uh, the fact that you need to have 10 million to take part in the tender and you, you could have a better terms next in a year's time or you'd think so on, on the basis of it. And it's you know not clear whether it's going to have that effect or not. So um, interesting with that lockup. Interesting situation, but then hedge funds are often a law unto themselves of how they go about doing things. Let's move on and talk about uh, Urban Logistics, REIT, that is ticker SHED, S-H-E-D. What do they have to say? Yeah, well, they've published a circular again, another uh, circular out about this week. And this is in connection with the cancellation of their shares to trading on AIM and a move to the premium segment of the official list and to trading on the main market and there's also a placing program involved in that circular as well. But effectively, this is about urban logistics moving across to the main market. If that all is approved uh, by shareholders and there will be a general meeting on the 12th of November, then that move is expected to occur on or around the 7th of December. Why does it matter? Well, it means that uh, urban logistics REIT would be eligible to uh, admission to the FTSE all share, which in turn would lead to index buying. But it also kind of puts Urban Logistics REIT on the front foot a little bit. And it provided a trading update for the half year to the 30th of September this year as well. And certainly they have some pretty positive story to tell in terms of the amount of money that they've managed to deploy. So they raised about £108 million or so back in July. That's all been invested. In fact, they've got a new pipeline of uh, more than £400 million uh, identified so one suspects they might be quite tempted to come back to the market, particularly given their rating at the moment is on about 17% or so. Yes, I mean, they're in a hot sector of the market at the moment. You'd think that would be uh, very popular. The discount would be somewhat uh, narrower than that, uh, given what some of the peer group is doing. Are they big enough to qualify for the all-share index? Well, I've got them on a market cap of just short of £580 million at the moment. So the short answer is yes. To get into the all-share but the small cap end, I think you have to be around about 190 to 200 million or so at the moment. So assuming that they could prove they had a sufficient liquidity in their shares and that they would be uh, eligible for inclusion. OK, well, we'll see how that one pans out. That seems to be like a sensible move on their part. Let's move on and talk about fundraising. The fundraising goes on, of course. Let's talk first of all about a company which is, I believe, called Atrato Onsite Energy. I may have got that pronunciation wrong apologies to them if so and their ticker proposed ticker is a roof r o f what do they do and what are they hoping to achieve here well they published a document this week basically outlining their intention to float a charto on-site energy is looking to raise 150 million pounds to invest in renewable energy assets and just to be slightly more specific on that this is what's described as behind the meter solar 
photovoltaic generation systems and associated infrastructure predominantly located on the roofs of commercial buildings. So I think this is solar panels on roofs to you and me uh, to keep it nice and simple. But they're looking to generate an annual total return of between 8 and 10%. And as part of that, they're targeting an annualised dividend of 5p per share, certainly for their first and second financial years following IPO. And thereafter, the idea is they'll look to grow the dividend progressively. But uh, the the story they're telling is about helping the UK in its move to a net zero transition, obviously to integrate ESG best practice. But one of the things that did get picked up by the media is if this IPO were to be successful, it would be the first time that a company has been listed in London with an all-female board. Three directors have been lined up. They all happen to be women. And so this would be a first, which is in some ways quite surprising. Indeed it is. Well, we'll watch what they do. Let's move on and talk about Nippon Active Value Fund, ticker NAVF, who are looking to do a capital raise. Perhaps you remind us who they are and uh, what they're now proposing to do. Yes. So um, this company came to the market back in February 2020 when they raised £103 million. Obviously, February 2020 was a slightly odd time to come to the market because about a month or so later, nobody was really that focused on new funds. But effectively, they've performed quite well. Uh, In fact, I think they're up about 34% since launch. This week, they've published a prospectus and a circular regarding a proposed capital raise. And this consists of initial placing, an offer for subscription, and an intermediaries offer for up to 150 million shares. This is a C-share issue, I should say. And that C-share issue price will be at uh, a pound. Uh, The initial issue is expected by the 25th of November. And it's all subject to shareholder approval on the 12th of November. But Nippon Active Value Fund uh, is managed by an outfit called Rising Sun Management. They are focused on Japanese small caps. And the idea is they look for undervalued companies and with inefficient balance sheets. Okay, so you might just remind us that a C-share issue, just to distinguish that from replacing a C-share issue, is where the money that's raised is essentially put in a kind of separate pocket and uh, remains there trading separately until the money has been all or mostly invested. Am I right about that? That's spot on. And and the idea behind that is that it therefore avoids a cash drag on the ordinary share class. And it's particularly used where the asset class in question is less liquid or the managers would wish to deploy that capital slightly more cautiously. So, I mean, how long that will take to deploy, I'm not altogether sure, but it might take a number of months. And then the idea would be to to flip the C-share back into the ordinary share class. And just finally, if this is successful, this issue, you know, minimum or maximum amount, um, you know, what difference will it make to the size of this company? Is it going to be a, a, a step change in the size of the company? Yeah, I think potentially. I mean, if they raise their £150 million that they're looking to do, then that would be a step change. So at the moment, their market cap is £137 million. Um, As I mentioned at launch, at IPO, they raised £103 million. So if they were to be successful, that could be almost a doubling of their of their assets. Yeah, that seems quite unusual in a way and quite ambitious. Well, good luck to them. There's one more fundraiser we need to mention in passing, which is uh, something called the Foresight Sustainable Forestry Trust. And what can you tell us about that? Uh, Yes, so the Foresight Sustainable Forestry Company, they're looking to come to the market. So it's a proposed IPO with an initial placing offer for subscription intermediaries offer. Perhaps as the name suggests, um, this fund will look to invest in UK forestry assets They're looking to raise up to £200 million through their IPO. Uh, And the idea is that they're targeting a net asset value total return of CPI plus 5% to affect inflation plus 5% per annum on a rolling five-yearly basis once substantially invested. But yes, the fund is looking to generate what they describe as an attractive net total return for shareholders over the longer term. And that will be through capital growth and aperiodic dividends through sustainable impact but the point being here is that it's not a, a, a yield play. It's very much, one suspects, looking to kind of play on the on the ESG and carbon emissions theme. Yes, yeah, so it's quite interesting, this one, because there have been in the past a couple of what we're calling timber or forestry uh, investment trusts, but they didn't uh, flourish particularly well, did they? I don't think from memory. Am I right about that? Can you recall those? Unfortunately, yes. Uh, Fanus Timber and Cambium Global Timberland, whatever it was called, uh, which is still with us, Ticker Tree, which is probably the best thing about it. Yeah, no, they weren't a great success, despite the investment manager of Fanus telling me many years ago that trees grow. What's not to like? 
but uh, it didn't end particularly well. Well, maybe this is what we'll do better. We'll see. It's a, there's a time and a place for everything. So let's move on and talk about some results. And we're going to kick off in the global sector with Henderson International Income, ticker H-I-N-T or HINT. That's right. And uh, HINT announced their annual results to the end of August. NAV total return of 23.5%. That represented a slight underperformance of the MSCI World XUK Index, which is up 26.9%. And in fact, in share price terms, they came at 18.5% as their discount widened from about 3% to 7.5%. So stock selection accounted for quite a, a large part of that underperformance, uh, although gearing was positive, as was asset allocation. So the biggest stock contributors were BE Semiconductor and not holding Amazon in that period, whereas the largest detractors were Hengen International, Cyrus One and Novartis. But as perhaps the name would suggest, the yield is an important part of the story, and all of the top 10 holdings increased dividends in the period. So in fact, revenue return per share was actually up 8% year on year to just short of 6p. Dividends of 6.3p were declared in respect of the year, and that was up 5% from the previous year. And in fact, the board made it clear that they are happy to run with uh, what they describe as an enhanced dividend, prepared to utilise realised capital gains in order to deliver a progressive dividend. But uh, Ben Lofthouse has managed this one for over 10 years now, since April 2011. And it is differentiated in that global equity income peer group by uh, avoiding the UK. So uh, as I mentioned, its benchmark is ex-UK. Okay, so if they do uh, change their benchmark, what do you think they might uh, they might move to? Um, I mean, there are various uh, benchmarks around there that obviously kind of pick up the more the fact that it's looking at income names. And I mean, this is a problem for funds that have a particular uh, investment approach, because clearly they're not going to look at some of the kind of the big tech companies, those that don't pay dividends, some of the markets where yields are very low and, you know, China might be a case in point are probably out of bounds. So it means that your investable universe becomes quite different from your benchmark. So to compare one with the other seems a little unfair. So, you know, there are various indices out there that have that kind of yield element to them. And that would seem to be a more appropriate measure. And the yield on that one is is roughly what? And how does that compare to uh, its peers? So the yield is about 3.8% at the moment. That's kind of broadly in line with that global uh, equity income peer group. I mean, there is a range within that. So Scottish American, the Bailey Gifford Fund, also known as Saints, uh, is at 2.4%. So that's at the lower end of that range. And at the top end, you've got Murray International, part of the Aberdeen stable with a 5% yield. OK, let's move on then and talk about a newcomer to the investment trust world. This is uh, Schroeder BSC Social Impact Trust, uh, one of the trusts that's trying to uh, do well by doing good. And uh, that ticker is SBSI. And uh, they've had their initial results, I think. That's right. So these were annual results, but effectively it starts from the IPO on the 22nd of December last year to the 30th of June. So it's just over six months. In that time, they generated an NAV to a return of 6.1%. And that was ahead of their performance target of CPI plus 2% per annum. And that reflected capital gains. So gains on investments such as the Bridges Evergreen Holdings, which is a specialist debt fund, did well for them in that time. And they suggested that the portfolio proved resilient despite the uncertainty created by the pandemic. They've declared a maiden dividend of 0.57p per share, and that's against a net revenue return of 0.58p. And that's consistent with their target expected dividend yield of between about 1% and 2% per annum. So they made the point in their results that their invested capital is already, as they put it, driving positive social outcomes across the UK and supporting more than 100 frontline organisations. As at the 30th of June, 66% of the IPO proceeds had been put into 23 investments, and that includes high-impact housing, debt for social enterprises, and social outcomes contracts, with the remaining commitments expected to be called over coming months. And they made the point that there is the potential for further fundraising in 2021 to invest in a pipeline of investments. And this trust hasn't been affected by the kind of fallout from the Civitas and other you know, issues with that kind of property investment. This is doing something rather different, is it not? Yes, I think so. I mean, it does have investments in social housing and uh, high impact housing, as it refers to it. But I mean, I think Jeremy Rogers, who's of Big Society Capital, is effectively the, the portfolio manager, uh, made the point when he talked to some of our clients at a seminar in Edinburgh recently 
the, the, the way they approach it is very different to how a Civitas or, or, or someone of that nature approaches that marketplace. So quite a different approach. So let's move on now, talk about some uh, overseas results, kicking off with Asia Dragon, ticker DGN. Uh, they've had some annual results. They have indeed. Annual results for the year ended 31st of August. The NAV total return was up 20.5% in that time, and that compares with a rise of 14.7% for the MSCI Asia X Japan index. So a significant outperformance. In share price terms, it was even greater, actually. That, that was up 24.3% as the discount narrowed from about 12% into 9.6%. So performance was assisted by being underweight Alibaba uh, in that period, but also the decision to what they describe as consolidating exposure to the internet sector, exiting smaller companies and focusing on companies more resilient to policy change. So actually in the results, there was quite a lot, as you might expect, a lot of chat about China and the regulatory changes that we've seen there. And the, the argument that the manager presented was that actually those regulatory changes really reflects the change in priorities away from alleviating poverty to shared prosperity and social equality. So in other words, there was a, kind of a method in the madness, so to speak. In addition to that, the advantage has been taken of a rotation from growth to value stocks by adding exposure to markets beyond China that have been sold down. So quite a busy period in terms of portfolio activity. But um, it's an interesting one. This. So Adrian Lim of Aberdeen is the manager and has been since August 2007. But this fund has really been on quite a journey. If you go back not that many years, there was a big emphasis on banks, financial services, a high weighting to Singapore. Whereas now, if you look at the portfolio, the kind of key country weights are towards China, unsurprisingly, but also Taiwan and Korea. And you really feel that the portfolio has moved on in that time. It's also worth noting that the manager is cautiously optimistic and made the point that corporate earnings are likely to rebound sharply this year. Uh, and that's reflected in the net gearing level, which stood about 8% or so at the end of August. So just remind me, because we talked about the other Aberdeen Trust before. So where does this one sit? They've got quite a lot of Asian trusts out there. How, how does this one actually compare in the, in the kind of constellation of Aberdeen uh, Asian trusts? So we have it in the Asia-Pacific ex-Japan subsector alongside Aberdeen New Dawn, which is differentiated by the fact it can invest in Australasia as well. So Asia Dragon doesn't, Aberdeen New Dawn does. And actually, if you look at the, the, the performance, I mean, over five years, New Dawn is slightly ahead at the moment. So it's up 70% on an NAV total return basis. Asia Dragon is up 61% over that same period. But then you also have funds such as Aberdeen Asian Income, which, as the name would suggest, has a yield element to it. And that's up 44% in NAV total return terms over five years. I suppose my question is leading up to this wider question, which is, do you think, given this kind of vogue for consolidation in the investment trust sector, and, and we've heard about what's happening with Aberdeen uh, New Tie and the Emerging Markets Investment Trust, do you think it's likely we'll see, we might see some more consolidation across the range from this particular provider? I mean, as we mentioned earlier, the Aberdeen stable is quite extensive. It's 22 ongoing funds. And there are certainly those that can overlap in their mandates. I mean, I think the point is to have funds in the same space is fine, but they have to be differentiated. So, uh, you know, whether it includes Australia, whether it has an income element, whether it focuses on smaller companies, which another Aberdeen fund does, or, or indeed now focuses on China as well. I think these things are all valid but they have to be clearly differentiated. You know, if you take the example of Bailey Gifford as an investment house, you look at the number of investment trusts they have in the global sector, for instance. Uh, I mean, they're certainly not short of global mandates, but they would argue, and I think with good reason, that they're all doing something slightly different. I think that's uh, understood and accepted by the investment community. Yeah, I just think in this case, I mean, I can't think of many people who would explicitly want to say, I don't want to invest in Australia or New Zealand, but I do want to invest in the Asia-Pacific region. I mean, it doesn't seem to have much uh, logic. It can't be a huge differentiating factor. But anyway, that's just an off-the-cuff reaction to that one. Let's move on and talk about Brown Advisory US Smaller Companies, uh, ticker BASC, which, as I recall, used to have a different name until quite recently. Tell us about this one. Yep. So they announced annual results for the year to the 30th of June. In that time, the NAV increased by 35.8%. That compared with a rise of 45.1% for the benchmark. And in share price total return terms, it was up 52.6% as the discount narrowed from about 16% into about 5%. However, as you just alluded to, this used to be the 
Jupiter US Smaller Companies Investment Trust. It's now uh, obviously the Brown Advisory US Smaller Companies Fund. And Brown Advisory were appointed manager on the 1st of April. So actually on this 12-month period, it's only the last three months or so that they were responsible. So Christopher Berrier of Brown Advisory, who's been responsible for their US small cap growth strategy for any number of years, has picked up the reins. And actually since that 1st of April start date, uh, they are ahead of the index. They're up about 7.5% in NAV terms versus about 3.5% for the index. Uh, And the focus is very much on high quality US smaller companies. So early days, but they seem to have got off on the right foot anyway. In terms of the rating on this one, has that moved at all with a new appointment? So, yeah, I've got it on my screen at about 11, 12% or so. And I mean, that will vary day to day, clearly. But there is a buyback policy that seeks to protect a level around about 10% or so. So certainly that's at the wider end of the range. Um, over the previous 12 months, the fund has averaged about a 9% discount. So move on. Let's talk about Henderson Far East Income, HFEL. We, we talked about Henderson International Income before. This is a different trust, obviously, with a different focus. So what do their results look like? So annual results to the end of August, NAV total return of 7.2% in that period. And that compared with a rise of 17.3% for the FTSE All World Asia Pacific X Japan Index. Uh, and indeed, a rise of 16.7% for the MSCI All-Country Asia-Pacific Ex-Japan High Dividend Yield Index. Now, the underperformance has been attributed to a focus on high yield, uh, with the value investment style apparently out of favour. And certainly, there was some commentary around the view on China. The managers are more defensive on China, but they don't view it as uninvestable. The revenue and the dividend is a kind of key part of this story, and the revenue earnings per share came in at about 23 22p and that was down from the previous financial year when it was at 23 spot 71p however dividend income was actually up 5.4% so dividends totaling 23.4p per share was declared in respect of the year and i beg your pardon sorry the dividends were actually up 1.7% uh, from the previous year but it's mike curley and sat dura who are responsible for this one it's also worth noting that actually the management fee has changed from the 1st of September, and that's going to move to 75 basis points. And that replaces a tiered structure of 0.9% on assets up to about 400 million and 0.75% thereafter. So that sounds like a relatively disappointing outcome, I guess. So I suppose if you've got two benchmarks, it's always quite difficult to judge whether it's good or bad. But uh, on this case, it clearly has been lagging the market. And uh, what about the rating? I think it's uh, one of the less attractively rated, and depending on your point of view, I suppose, in the sector. So we've got in the Asia-Pacific income subsector, and actually, um, depending on your exact terminology, um, but it's on a 2% premium at present, and every other investment trust in that subsector is trading on a discount, and that discount varies from 2 3% out to 11% for the Aberdeen Asian Income Fund. So Henderson Far East Income is the most highly rated in that peer group, and I think the answer why that might be the case is the fact that it's yielding 7.8% on a historic basis versus its peers who are nearer to about 4 4.5%. So there is a kind of real pickup in the yield that this one offers. Indeed. Okay, so let's move on then and talk about uh, another one that is uh, in the same, well, not quite the same sector, but in the same kind of business, which is JP Morgan Global Emerging Markets Income Trust, JEMI. What have they had to say? Yeah, so they also had annual results for the year to the 31st of July. Um, NAV total return of 24.6%, that compared with 13.9% for their benchmark, which is the MSCI Emerging Markets Index. Share price total return was actually up 27.8% as the discount narrowed into about 7%. Uh, Revenue return, obviously a key part of the story, that came in at 4 spot 9.4p and that was up 15% uh, year on year. And the board have decided to maintain the full year dividend at 5.1p. Uh, so it wasn't quite covered, but they've got revenue reserves of about 8.4 million. That was, um, that's equivalent to about 50% of the annual dividend. But uh, the things that worked for them in this period, well, they had positions in Taiwan Semiconductor, JSS Global, uh, and also not holding Alibaba and Tencent was positive. They also reduced their management fee as well. So with effect from the 1st of August, um, that's gone from 0.9% to 0.75%. Just remind me, uh, I should know this, but is this one of the uh, JP Morgan 
trust that does have an enhanced income policy, or is it just a plain, what you call an old-fashioned plain vanilla income trust? No, it's the latter. So it's very much an equity income play. So it's not an enhanced uh, dividend play. So, you know, hence the fact that uh, they're very much focused on that revenue return per share, which, as I said, just short of 5p, and they paid out a dividend of 5.1p. So it wasn't covered, but the amount of revenue reserves they required was relatively limited. Okay, so let's move on to talk about Pacific Assets, ticker PAC. They've had some results too, but that's uh, these are interim results. That's right, interim results to the end of July, in which time they generated an NAV total return of 5.6%, and that represented an outperformance of the MSCI or Country Asia X Japan Index, which actually fell 6.6%, and also it outperformed the uh, their other performance objective of CPI plus 6%. In share price terms, not quite as good, actually. Total return of 1.7% as the discount widened from um, 3% to 6%. But uh, it's an interesting portfolio, this. It's it's quite different from most of those Asia-Pacific ex-Japan portfolios. It's worth saying that there's a kind of sustainable investment approach. It's run by Stuart Investors. David Gates has been responsible for this one for a number of years. And they effectively invest in companies that benefit and contribute to the sustainable uh, development of economies and societies. But there's a, a huge weighting to India, or huge compared with most of their peers. So about 45% of the portfolio is invested in India. And in fact, the Indian companies contributed positively to performance, despite um, a company called Vitasoy that uh, didn't do quite so well in that time. So as we mentioned them earlier, we could quickly just compare how they performed over time with against uh, Asia Dragon that we talked about earlier, which is obviously in the same sector, I think. Sure. So on a five-year NAV total return basis, they're up 55%. As I mentioned, Asia Dragon is up 61% over that time. So we'll move on and talk about Schroeder Japan Growth Fund, ticker SJG. And they've also produced an annual report. What's their message this time around? Well, their message is that they've outperformed, actually. So these are annual results for the year to 31st of July. NAV total return of 25.7%. That compared with a rise of 18% for the benchmark. Uh, in share price terms, even stronger, actually. Share price total return up 33.7% as the discount moved from about 15% into about 10%. So the story here is it's run by a chap called Masaki Takusami. And his investment style is certainly more on the kind of value spectrum, a moderate bias to value in addition to which there was um, some positive stock selection in the period. It's also worth noting that they were about 10% geared as well, which helped their returns. But uh, the manager is pretty confident in terms of the opportunities that he's seeing in the Japanese market at the moment. And again, you know that level of gearing 10% reflects that. Then we'll move on again, and we'll talk about uh, Vina Capital Vietnam Opportunity Fund, ticker VOF which we've talked about in the past on a number of occasions. Vietnam, very interesting place to invest if you're going to invest in a single country. A communist country with a highly capitalistic approach to uh, making money, I think it's fair to say, and um, quite popular with some investors. But uh, what's the story been here? Yeah, so these were annual results for the year to the 30th of June. In that time, they generated an NAV to a return of 65.6%. That compared to a rise of 75.3% for the VN index. The share price total return came in at 63.1%. Um, but there was some discussion about the elevated valuations uh, in the, the Vietnamese market as the PE ratio discount to its regional peers narrow. But it's certainly an interesting portfolio, this one. So it's run by, uh, as the name would suggest, Vina Capital Investment Management. Andy Ho uh, is the lead manager there. But it's quite a diversified portfolio. So 69% is in listed holdings, 9% unlisted. They've also got an allocation to private equity and bonds as well. Yes, yeah, interesting. I looked at this one and its performance track record is pretty remarkable. I mean, it's trading something like two and a half times where it was before the pandemic. Uh, so it's not just a case of there being a sort of bounce back along with every other kind of market after the pandemic crisis. This one really has been roaring ahead. No, I think that's right. And if you look at the NAV total return numbers over five years, it's up 110%. But actually, uh, over the last year or so, it's up about 49%. So it has performed very well of late. But still trades on a pretty substantial discount. I've got it on about an 18% discount or so at the moment. Yeah, interesting. Okay, let's move on then finally. We've got a couple of specialist trusts to talk about. Uh, We'll start off with CQS Natural Resources Growth and Income. A bit of a mouthful, ticker CYN. They also had some uh, annual results, I think. That's right, annual results to the 30th of June. Again, a strong set of results here. So the NAV total return was up 83 
0.1%, and that compares with a rise of 27.5% for their composite index, uh, which is a mixture of 80% a mining index and a 20% high yield index. And that reflects the fact that this is a hybrid portfolio between uh, fixed income and mining stocks. So uh, what happened in the period? Well, it's also worth noting, actually, the share price still was up 110% as the discount narrowed in from 20% to about 7%. So during the, the financial year, they certainly benefited from uh, the rising copper prices, uh, and that was kind of half of their positive returns. First quantum and foreign metals in particular were very strong. Uh, and in fact, the managers are, are positive on the outlook for copper although they've reduced the, the weighting effectively, taking profits after that strong performance. There's also a bit of a play on clean energy and electrification policies globally. That's certainly a key investment theme. Uh, in terms of the revenue earnings per share, they came in at 3.1p. That was uh, down from 3.35p in the previous financial year, uh, and they paid out uh, dividends totaling 5.6p, and that was in line with the previous year. So pretty exceptional results, but that's the kind of uh, performance you get with these kind of resources uh, stocks, is it not? I seem to remember that uh, this one peaked uh, quite a few years ago, the share price, and it's uh, had a tough period for a while when these resources stocks went out of favour, and now it's come bouncing back again, uh, not unrelated to what's going on around the world with supply shortages and uh, fears of higher inflation. Uh, Give us a potted history of this one. I'm, not many people, I think, are particularly familiar with this one. Yeah, well, it's, it's got a market cap of around 113 million, and that would have been significantly lower uh, not that long ago. So if you look over the last year, it's up about 86% in NEV terms. You look over five years, it's up 65%. So, you know, as the numbers would suggest, it's been a little bit of a roller coaster along the way. But the fixed income uh, kind of section of the portfolio, that's run by a chap called Ian Franco Francis, who's a very experienced uh, investor, and then uh, Keith Watson and Robert Crawford are responsible for the, the mining element of it. So again, it's quite a different approach, a different portfolio, but the yield is uh, not unimportant. A yield, I mean, it has been some yield contraction because of that rise in capital, but it's still yielding 3.3% or so at the moment on a historic basis. Okay, so that's an interesting one in the current climate. And let's move on and talk about uh, Harbourvest Global Private Equity ticker HVPE, another one of these private equity trusts that is trading on a pretty wide discount. But what have their results been looking like? Well, yes, we heard interim results for the six months to the end of July and a strong set of results, effectively. The NAV was up 22.6% in that time. That compared with a rise of 13.8% for the FTSE All World Index. In share price terms, uh, they're up about 20.3%. But the NAV outperformance reflected valuation increases and strong exit activity, particularly given the portfolio, which is a fund of private equity funds, effectively, um, a very high exposure to venture and growth capital that represented 37% of the NAV at the end of July. So there were some good uplifts in terms of realisations, but even unrealised gains came in very strongly as well. Technology and software is the largest sector exposure at 29% of the portfolio, which is hugely, hugely diversified. But the portfolio threw off a lot of cash in the period and, in fact, ended up with a net cash position. And, and they're looking to increase the uh, commitments to Harbourvest funds uh, for the remainder of 2021 in order to ensure that that ongoing commitment ratio remains in line with where it's been on a historic basis. But uh, there was a lot of discussion uh, in the results and indeed the accompanying analyst meeting about the fund's discount because despite that strong run and in fact a, a very good long-term track record, it still remains on a 20 plus percent discount. The chair talked about that uh, and acknowledged that there have been two notable large sellers uh, effectively acting as, as a bit of a headwind to the rating. Although, as a result, presumably of one or both of them selling down, the concentration of the top five shareholders has moved from 38% to 29%. Uh, but there was some discussion whether they would pursue buybacks. Uh, the board obviously minded not to do that. Uh, they'd rather use their capital to make additional commitments to Harbourvest funds. Yes, yeah, so this is an interesting issue. It's quite a live topic at the moment, isn't it? Because a lot of private equity trusts are uh, complaining about the fact that their, their discounts are too wide. But some of them doing some buybacks and others not for different reasons. But um, you might ask if these private equity trusts are doing as well as they as they appear to be doing and the prospects are still good for them, why have we got you know large sellers uh, reducing their holdings? Did they explain about that, why that might be the case? 
in the case of those two particular shareholders, they certainly didn't disclose the reasons for them selling down. And, and you know, we can speculate. But I think in general, one of the issues that fund of private equity funds have had in terms of why people have not been um, you know, quicker to invest or, or maybe willing to sell um, has been the kind of look through costs involved in that. And certainly in the wealth management community, where there is an onus on them to disclose their look through costs, the fact that private equity is an expensive asset class has been a significant headwind. And HarperVest have been very good at providing disclosure around that, but it doesn't get over the fact that um, you know this is expensive. Now, those people in the private equity industry would argue that it's expensive for good reason, that they are doing something quite different from the investors in publicly quoted uh, equities. And there's a lot of effort obviously goes into running um, private equity portfolios and ultimately the results are worth it. That would be their argument. But for those in the intermediaries sector, in the wealth management world, they would say, well, we can get you know quite good returns by not going down the private equity route. So that's the kind of ongoing discussions. And as you say, you know, should they be buying back, particularly at a time when they are seeing a lot of realizations and a lot of cash is being thrown off. But as I said, the chairman, who's a gentleman called Ed Warner, is a very experienced director, including a number of investment trusts. Uh, he set out their store why he didn't think that was the appropriate course of action to take at the moment. Indeed. Well, that debate will rumble on, I'm sure, uh, particularly as long as the market remains in positive form. That brings us to the end this week. I'm happy to tell you there is an interesting piece by my colleague Stuart Watson about enhanced income trusts for those of you who are subscribers to the Moneymakers Circle. And I'm happy also to say that uh, this week saw me putting the final touches to the next edition of the Investment Trust Handbook, which comes out every year. And uh, I hope it might be of interest to some of you out there. In any event, Simon, we look forward to speaking again next week. Thank you for your uh, wise words again this week. And uh, let's talk again in seven days' time. Look forward to it. This has been a Moneymakers Investment Trust podcast. These podcasts are independently produced and edited and are available on all leading podcast channels. You can sign up on the Moneymakers website, www.money-makers.co, to be notified every time a new podcast is available. Thank you for listening. And if you want more news, analysis, interviews, and other investment trust content, don't forget to take a look at our premium service, The Moneymakers Circle, available now at the website.